Welcome, welcome, my lovies, to Faces of Postpartum, the podcast. I am Ariane Audet, writer, mom, photographer, advocate, and founder of the project. In this podcast, I feature postpartum stories from parents, informal discussions with friends about parenthood, and interviews with passionate providers and experts. Everything here is evidence-based, honest, and heartfelt. So stick around for unfiltered talks about the postpartum period. It's always an honor to have you here. I'm so happy to be chatting about this. Yeah. Good. So I think I mentioned when I, I reached out that I wanted to talk specifically for an article I'm writing about weight-based stigma in the obstetric world. And then I went... <laughs> on your basically bio on the GW <laughs> website. And I was like, okay, I just want to spend five hours with, with them <laughs> talking about everything uh, that is on it. So let's get into it then. Instead of just me reading your bio, please tell me about yourself. Tell me about your background, where you come from. Why did you choose to do all of these things? Okay. Yeah. So I am originally from New York and I moved down to Baltimore for college and loved it there. And I stayed there for a very long time. I went to Johns Hopkins and became a nurse and I did that for a few years and I, I loved it. And, and also it helped magnify really big systemic problems for me that I couldn't I didn't feel like I could tackle as a bedside nurse. So that kind of lit a fire under my butt to go back to school. And I went to Georgetown. They have a program that's a dual track nurse practitioner and uh, midwife, nurse midwife. So you were asking before about if you hadn't heard of graduate school for midwifery, I believe is what you said, right? Mm -hmm. And not all, mid, not all midwifery takes the same path to get there. So there's a few different types of midwives uh, in the United States. I am a CNM or certified nurse midwife, which is just one type. And neither is better than the other. They all are really unique and really beneficial for people who are, you know, pregnant, birthing, postpartum, accessing GYN care, but each of us takes a little bit of a different path. So because I was already a nurse, I took that path because it was kind of a more direct route for me to become a provider. And I felt like with the continuity I could have as a provider, as a midwife, seeing people more than one time, more than just in their labor, that I could have more of an impact on, on changing the things that I was seeing that were problematic. Which were? Ooh, to name a few. I mean, the biggest thing is just violations of consent. I think that especially, yeah, especially in um, the birth world, it's just so flagrant. It happens in all areas of healthcare and it's always problematic, but I think it's just, it's this microcosm in, in the birthing world of just, of, of just violation after violation of consent. Yeah, it's interesting. There's something, you know, it's not going to really come as a surprise to say that I'm a hardcore um, feminist in the most inclusive way possible. <laughs> and coming from Canada, I was already viewed as a socialist and a leftist. I just had to radicalize myself and be like, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's, that's why I'm now living right. in the U.S. and being a, a U.S. citizen. But there's something you, you say specifically in the obstetric world where it's, mostly women who historically have been you know marginalized so I feel it's even more like the patriarchy in in its 
ugliness has the most power on that. So of course there are women and marginalized people and vulnerable population who have cancer, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's not concentrated to a certain area where you can just, as you say, violate consent and violate who they are and just, you know, aggressively show them that they don't belong in a world where they have power and agency. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's interesting. So that's interesting because one of my questions was, why did you go from being a bedside nurse to a midwife? And, you know, that answer the question very, very well. How long have you been doing this? So 2014? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, just about seven years as a midwife now. And then I was a nurse for five years before then. All right. And you are also a professor? Yeah, I now TW. Yeah, so I, I now teach in the midwifery program that I graduated from. So I work with just a bunch of badass midwives and nurse practitioners in that program. And it's, it's you know, kind of what you were just describing I, 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 as like <laughs> socialist, leftist, radical, <laughs> inclusive feminism. Like I, I, it, I work alongside such incredible people and it's really cool to be able to help shape the the next cohorts of people who are becoming providers. I want to get to anyone before they touch another person's body as a provider, right? Before they ever know that they could be violating consent and talk about the history of what, you know, GYN care really is in this country. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think when we talk about what the problems are, you can, you can always root it back to the patriarchy, back to like colonialism, back to racism. But in this area of healthcare, it's so unique because one, people are often very healthy and it's not always like you had mentioned, like having cancer, it's not always an acute problem that people are seeking care for. It's their wellness and sometimes complications associated with that. But also it's generally people who have a uterus or who are assigned female birth or mostly women or, you know, non-binary and trans folks. And those are people who are already being told in so many aspects of their lives that you don't belong or you don't have agency. So then to add it to their own wellness on top of that is just like this huge blow to just actually achieving that wellness, right? I mean, there's, it's hard to get there on such a circuitous path with so many road bumps and people are so resilient that it happens anyway, but it's like, despite the system, instead of with the help of the system. Do you think birding people belong in hospitals? Low risk birding people. I think that if they think that's the best thing for them, then yes. I think that so many people seek out of hospital options because it's the safer option for them because people just know themselves and they know what type of safety they can get for themselves outside of a hospital setting. Yeah, I've had a lot. I've interviewed many women, non-binary folks who are shit scared going to the hospital. Obstetric violence is real non-consensual uh, vaginal exam as early as 14 years old yep. you know, is, is real. There's not a lot of people with a vagina that I've talked to who have not gone through some ex- very you know traumatizing, violent experience. Do you feel, since you're also a professor and you work in hospital, in a hospital setting, mm-hmm. that things are changing? <laughs> I love your face because this is just going to be an audio thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's like if you just bit into a lemon. 
yeah I don't it's it's so hard can you reframe that question for me I'm trying to I'm buying myself time to answer that correctly yes absolutely (laughs) and I'm a woman of words I'm just going to thread around it and you can have time and maybe we're just going to forget about it then go on another question so I interviewed a woman so I don't know if you you've read a little about uh, what this project is but basically it was born after I landed in a psychiatric hospital which was also traumatizing in a way that hospitals for me are very traumatizing. So to go back to a hospital setting and be like, hi, are you going to take care of me this time? Or something's going to happen. And I recently I interviewed the nurse who took care of me back then, who is not in the unit anymore. And she she's on the verge of retiring. So she knows, <laughs> she knows things that I don't know. And very, I guess I'm in a fight mode right now. And she was like, you know, change is happening it's just not happening where you might think it is it might not be happening in the hospital administration or in the protocols or in the regulations that are put in place but it is happening on a grassroots level starting with instagram you know women putting their or burning people postpartum people pregnant people putting their experiences on the internet and for other people to read and look at it's happening with the nurses who take care of you and so I guess I so my background is in academia and I know you can do a lot in a classroom so I guess are things are are things changing maybe not if you talk to the about the hospital administrators but are things changing in the classroom do you feel like the new cohorts like the the new med students because this is also an issue in the training let's be honest they they train doctors to think of themselves as gods my sister is a primary care doctor and she was like man they're like you are the cream of the cream the best of the best you have like they put them on a pedestal very early on and so do you feel there's a a hospitability of you going there and being like, no, dude, you're going to have to ask for consent. You are not entitled to jack shit. It's interesting because in your, I, I don't know if you wrote that. I imagine you did, <laughs> but you write about your client. And I don't, I know that words matter. And I wasn't sure if it was something that you, you put there intentionally, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a, it's sad that we have to go back to it, but there's a client provider and not just a patient, which is yeah. very passive. Yeah. No, I kind of digressed, but do you feel you're making a difference? I guess the question was that. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Do you feel you're making a decision in addition, a decision, a difference in the classroom, in the birding room with your colleagues? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think change is happening and I think it's happening incredibly slow at a frustratingly slow rate, right? In some regards. So I think in the hospital, in the realm of quote unquote medicine, it's changing really slowly. I think in the classrooms, in the birth rooms, it is changing fast. And that's because I I agree with kind of what you referenced. It's because of a lot of grassroots organization. It's a lot of people sharing their stories. It's a lot of just complete fucking bravery that people are sharing trauma and talking about trauma and this sort of, you know, sometimes community healing occurs, which is great. And sometimes it's re-traumatizing for people, but the fact that it's being talked about instead of 
swept under a rug or assumed to be normal, that's where the more rapid change is happening. So I'm just so hopeful about the, the future of providers and not just midwives and nurse practitioners. The med students that I work with are radical and I'm so excited about them. And they're really getting in touch with this. You know, I, I think I think the social climate is changing in the country too. It's it's this this unrest is so, you know, it's so necessary. Uh, because of where we come from in this country. But that is, those are the people I think that are going to medical school now and the people who are becoming providers and the people who are, you know, I think midwives have always been that. So I don't think that's Mm. so different. But when I say midwives have always been that, I I mean like midwifery at its original, you know, from from what historically, not what we are, not CNMs right now, certified nurse midwives are predominantly white. We're about 95% white profession. It's not very diverse and that doesn't represent who we take care of and it doesn't represent where we come from either. So the, the change I'm seeing within the new cohorts of midwives too are the people who are going to change that. It's just really, I think that's why I love teaching so much because where I feel like my heart gets beaten down sometimes in hospital settings, that kind of uplifts me. So they, they do so much for me too, but it's changing to answer your question. It's changing really slowly in some places and more quickly in others. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, in school it's nice and then you get hit in the face by the reality and it's more comfortable to just go with the flow as a provider. So yeah, I get, I get that. Can we talk about the postpartum period since this whole project of mine is about that? Yeah. I want to hear you. I want to hear what you have to say about it, about how you care for your clients, patients. Do you prefer clients or patients? I prefer clients just, you know, because they're, they're enlisting my services, right? Mm-hmm. So they, the power dynamic should be in their favor. But yeah, I mean, the postpartum period in the United States is grim for a lot of people, right? The fourth trimester is not something that is focused on heavily in the prenatal period. I think that there's so much focus on how do we get you the birth experience you want, or you know, how do we optimize your preferences for that? How do we help keep you like focused on your goals? How do we support you in that? And how do you use us as your experts to along the journey? Right. And then birth happens. Mm -hmm. Great. And then what, and then what we see you twice. So we go from, yeah, (laughs) right. And then on, you know, it, COVID has been so hard because the resources that were already sparse are almost non-existent. So telehealth is great for a bunch of reasons, but there's limited availability most places. So like you said, if you're lucky, you're getting two visits. And usually that's at the cost of having to spend an hour on hold with a call center, trying to schedule your appointments when you're in between naps or trying to nurse or not really what you need to be doing. There's so many things that could make that easier for people. On top of that, you know, lack of paid family leave, lack of in-home support, lack of lactation services, they exist, but you have to have a great degree of privilege to have easy access to them. So I feel like as a midwife, I'm really limited in in the 
type of care that I could provide that would change that other than being an advocate for policy change. So definitely, you know, helping to talk about it more. So just earlier in a pregnancy, start to say, you know, like, what are your, what are your thoughts about the fourth trimester? What do you know about it? What do you have? What support systems do you have kind of waiting to go? Because as you know, we don't live in Canada or France or in uh, many other countries that have great support for that period of your life. So talking about those very real, like crappy conditions earlier is kind of a buzzkill, but it can be helpful to um, at least acknowledge it. Do you think we need a whole other area of specialization? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, let's just make certified postpartum midwife. <laughs> I'm not even sure what the name would be, but caregiver or uh, doulas do that work. Doulas, it, doulas should run the world, first doulas of all. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there should be, I think it should be the norm and I think it should be mandatory to have a specialty area for the postpartum period for entire families. And it shouldn't be this disjointed, the birth person sees the midwife, the baby sees the pediatrician, sometimes they go to the lactation consultant, right? Like it should be coming to them. There's some people in DC that are doing really incredible work with home care as well. It, it should be made accessible. It should be made easier. It should absolutely be its own area. Yeah. Yeah, conversation needs to happen before. It was also, as you said, that this this joint. It's funny because Emily, who was your client, and I, I don't think she would bother. She would be bothered by me saying that, um, <laughs> since she's been so so vocal. Said something along the line that there was when I was wheeled from labor and delivery to the maternity ward. It would felt like I was dropped on the highway to. F- fish <laughs> you know like oh a cat hi <laughs> and she was like that was so brutal that was yeah. so brutal and and traumatizing and then you know other things happened and she shared the story on on the yeah. site so you know her her medical condition didn't make it easy but you know y- y- you mentioned there's something really crazy you know we mentioned patriarchy and all that once the baby is taken away from from Mm -hmm. the birding person it's like if that person doesn't exist anymore so it's to wonder if all along we didn't care more about the baby than the vessel basically we are treating uh, pregnant people as the vessels and it's interesting because i interviewed a woman a, a black woman and i think it's worth mentioning because they are holding the world on their shoulders. And she opened housing. She has a house uh, in Hagerstown, if I'm not mistaken, for a women and family in crisis. And she, she comes from a very religious background. And she's like, people want to talk about babies. They want to talk about adoption. No one wants to talk about moms, especially not moms in crisis or moms in needs. And she's like, I'm tired of trying to spin that story to make it sound like you know but you should care we should care you know we should care about the people who are literally keeping the species alive and and it's interesting because talking to Casey she (laughs) I (laughs) I said something I don't want to say against doctor but I probably said something against doctors (laughs) and she was like I will not be 
and I'm not sure this is the word she used, but I will not be an object of discord. So I will not feed into that dividing uh, narrative because we will lose. First of all, I will lose because she's like, I'm not in a position of power. And also we will all collectively lose. So how do you do it on a daily basis to, because I assume this is also the role you're trying to play, although you are very aware of all these, the broken system, how do you do to just not flip tables and 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 you know or stay in bed all day because <laughs> yeah. I imagine there are days that feels like that yeah I absolutely it it can be it can be you know compassion fatigue is very very real and provider burnout is very real but I feel like I flip metaphorical tables all the time I feel like that's <laughs> my work you know I think I think to be complacent in in this field is very easy and that's what makes for quality of life as, as a provider, maybe. But I think flipping tables is, is why I practice in a hospital right now. And I also want to acknowledge that I think I practice in a microcosm where the hospital that I work at, I work with really incredible midwives and nurses and doctors and residents. And it's so cool to see how receptive everyone is to change and how much knowledge they have already. And I acknowledge that that's not the norm everywhere. Yeah, and in most places it's not the norm. So I feel very privileged to work where I do, but even in the most fantastic of hospital settings, there's so much change that has to happen. So that's how I flip my tables. I think by offering these you know, types of education to talk about trauma with other providers, to talk about consent-based care, to talk about other ways of doing things that are historically very common to a lot of midwives, but not taught necessarily in medical school. So getting that integrated into curriculum and talked about early before people go out into the world, you know, start, start the habits good instead of trying to break bad habits later. So that's kind of like my table to flip. So I feel like out of hospital birth is where my heart is. And I think that is for so many people, the, the absolute best option if they feel that, but in the hospitals where the most work needs to be done. So I feel like while I have any, any spark in me, that's what I'm going to do. And I hope to maybe end my career doing more of what I love. Yeah. yeah. What do you do for self-care? Like the real thing, not the many pity, not that. Right. right. Really. Yeah. So I have taken up pasta making. So like handmade pasta, and that's been like my form of meditation. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, like the different personality types. I'm an Enneagram four, yeah. which is a type of personality that's very focused on like, like pleasing aesthetics and we're a little bit dramatic and it's just, I'm very well suited to like doing something that like tastes and looks good. So like if I can, I'm learning more about like, I, I'm trying to get into like wine knowledge and like making pasta and those types of things like make me very happy. I am, I am probably the luckiest person in the world and that my partner is also a midwife and she's the most lovely human in the world. And we, I'd say most of our friends are mental health professionals. I'm just surrounded by like radical, emotionally intelligent humans. So I feel like my self-care in the form of like meditation and pasta and hiking and, and just being around my animals is complemented very nicely by my community. That's lovely. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question? Of course. Are children in the 
I know this is not something I never asked that, but <laughs> I, I feel, I feel I can, I hope I can, I'll cut it in the editing process if I cannot, but is it something that you are looking into? No, that is totally okay. We're very open about this question. Historically, I did not want children. I really enjoy children. I wish pe more people in my family had them so I could be like a cool aunt, but that, I'm just, you know, not a ton of people in my world have kids right now. So my partner, Signe and I very much have the conversation often of just by nature of what we do also. Um, And she works in uh, fertility and does a lot of, she's a midwife that works in, doesn't like catch babies, but helps make them and does a lot of like reproductive endocrinology and uh, trans affirming care. So given that we have access to the knowledge and resources, we decided to make embryos. So we have, we have eight frozen embryos four from each of us. And then, so we, now it's like our insurance policy because we're teetering on, maybe we do want a kid. Now we have them on ice and we'll decide over the next few years and not feel so rushed about it. Literally on ice. Yeah. Literally on ice. This is lovely. <laughs> Thank you for answering. Yeah, that. of course. Weight-based stigma, mm -hmm. since it's kind of why I reached out to you. <laughs> and also, so first of all, I like that you use, not that I, anyone care about what I like or not, but I like that you use the weight-based stigma, not fat phobia, given that there's, you know, again, words matter. And can you just, I know, tell me more about it is kind of vague, but how do you approach it in your care? Maybe give me some example um, yeah. of things you've seen or things can be improved or how it affects people. Yeah. Oh man. So yeah, I have used fat phobia in the past because I think it's a, a term that's understood by a lot of people, but it's not, it's not a phobia. This is not a medical condition on the part of a, a person who's spewing hate. So weight-based stigma, you know, this is not unique necessarily to the United States, but it's really, really out of control here. Mm -hmm. And this is another thing that goes back to the patriarchy. This is another thing that goes back to colonialism and in medicine and in healthcare, we see this really take, take kind of flight in the form of, I think, violations of consent. So one, when the patriarchy doesn't view a woman or someone who's AFAB or assigned female at birth, if you don't see the value in that person as a human, and then on top of that, you don't see the value in anyone's body that doesn't fit this like thin like straight sized body that is glorified in our country. Lights Now you have, usually. yeah. Right. And then on top of that, put any other marginalized identity, put a gender minority, put someone who's black or brown or indigenous. Now you have all these different layers of identity that are not only not valued by our society, but are stigmatized. And we know we have well-documented data about the effects of stigma on someone's health and the effects of weathering and allostatic load walking through just the world, not, not even getting to healthcare yet, just walking through the world in your own damn body, right? So instead of celebrating diversity and celebrating the fact that we're fucking human beings and we're not all supposed to look the same, every other species that exists has diversity in size, right? So why would we expect humans to not have that? So then you take it to the healthcare arena. Now, I mean, 
you tell me you've accessed healthcare before, right? How many times has a provider met you or asked your consent before taking your weight? Or are you just brought into an office and put on the scale? Never. Right. So never. And even now when I tell them, because it's more known and, and again, I'm privileged because I'm educated because I have time to read because I have time to, you know, do research. But yeah. even now when I'm like, no, I'm not going to step on your scale. They're like freaking out. Yeah. And I'm absolutely, you know, I'm standard size. I fit all the criteria. I'm able-bodied. You know, I look like a woman. I checked the little female boxes. <laughs> Although now I just uh, <laughs> crave them and I'm like, this is not what it should be. Like, you know, open the gender spectrum. This is bullshit. Yeah. Same thing when I feel like the paperwork for my kids. But <laughs> yeah, they are taking it back. And usually it sucks because it's usually the nurse and she's like, well, I'm sorry, I got to do it. You can close your eyes. And I was like, that doesn't work like that. You know, mm -hmm. you, I don't, I don't have to close my eyes. And I also don't have to explain to you because that I'm not doing this because I don't want to know how much I weigh because I suffered from eating disorders when I was a kid, even though I don't look like it. Right. And not only I don't look like it, I also benefit from all of this. Mm -hmm. So why is it so hard for me who, who, who is at the top of the food chain? Yeah, I cannot, I can only imagine what it is if you don't fit that. Wow. And, and it's, you know, I think we tend to glorify universal healthcare mm -hmm. because it's a great idea in theory. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then in practice, we live in a neoliberal world. I don't know if this is a word in English, but where they cut, you know, services and for, for who, for the 1%. So now yeah. we, we find ourselves without I've never had a primary care doctor living in Quebec. It was always, you know, urgent care. Or so I never saw the same provider more than once uh, at some random hospitals. And so you don't want to fight. And so when you are also a person who doesn't fit all these criteria, you're screwed. You're really yeah. screwed. And it's yeah. scary. It's yeah. absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And there's a lot of just like compliance because people believe it's expected of you and because people believe that there's a power dynamic that's in favor of the provider. And also then add on other layers on top of that, you know, a person of color doesn't want to be seen as aggressive, right? When they're asserting a boundary in a world that already sees them that way, right? So I think there's all these layers, like when, when you should be screening people for disordered eating or eating disorders before ever talking to them about their weight. But yet, even on a provider level where it's problematic, we have the systems in place. So CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, essentially mandates that providers document someone's BMI. And if it's above 25, which is the quote unquote upper lim limits of normal, then you document a follow-up plan for how that person loses weight, right? And that is the opposite of what evidence tells us is healthy. We have a huge body of evidence saying that intentional weight loss is harmful, and yet it's prescribed to everyone who's overweight. And you know, I, I believe the terms overweight and obese are like profanity, right? They're not accurate. They, they, they don't they don't have any impact on someone's health. We have very real tangible things that are discriminatory and are you know, documented areas of, of health concerns, but yet we're focusing on a body size for some reason, despite all this evidence. And in healthcare, in, in medicine, in midwifery, in all these fields, we, we tout ourselves on evidence-based practice, except when it comes to weight science. I don't know I, I, and this is a part I don't have a grasp on other than, other than stigma, other than implicit bias. 
I don't know why we're upholding all of these recommendations and guidelines based on, on bad science. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, it's one of those situations where you're like, guys, guys, like none of that makes sense. Like we can, and we're not like talking about anecdotal research or evidence. Like it's like rock solid from your own, you know, departments or your own people. Have yeah. come, you know, it's like, there's really something I mean, again, as you said, like it's systemic and systems yeah. are hard to yeah. tackle. It's, it's awful and it costs lives. And yeah. as Emily put it, she was like, when I became sick and I had preeclampsia and had to go back to the hospital or postnatal pre- preeclampsia, yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's the term. I was like, I did that to myself and I did that to my daughter and it's because of my weight when there's absolutely no evidence and yet it's internalized. And she was like, I felt like part of my trauma is that it's because of my weight. Yeah, absolutely. Total bullshit. So if even the people who are living through it, yeah, it's like, it's, this is the real epidemic. You know, yeah. this is the real tragedy. Uh, yeah. It's not obesity. Right. It's the fact that people are like hitting themselves on, on the head and yeah. saying like, this is my fault. Yep, absolutely. Instead of saying, I'm so sorry that you've had to grow up and walk through a world that hates your body, that stress can definitely impact your health, right? It's yes. nothing that you did. You have kept yourself safe. You have kept yourself healthy. You, you grew a human inside your body and you birthed it, like you are a badass and the system has failed you. And as someone who has lived in many different size bodies and struggled with an array of eating disorders and then navigating the healthcare system as both a client and a provider, it's just so disheartening that, that we're not there yet. And that, and that it doesn't even seem to be a priority for a lot of people. So this is where the grassroots like efforts are really coming through because, you know, the consumer has the most power when it's consistently, if it's like, if it had, if the voice is coming through in unison, right. And when people who are in larger bodies, people who are in straight size bodies, when, when, when everyone is having the voice of like, we're tired of your shit and we're tired of being devalued and we're tired of this bogus interpretation of science then hopefully more change happens quickly. But, and if that's happening at the same time as providers getting educated and new providers coming out already making change themselves, we're going to get there. It's, it's just really disheartening to have to continue to have the conversation. And I'm so happy that, you know, you're using your, your platform to talk about it too. People need to hear it because there are so many people that don't know that, that, that it, their body size is not a problem and it's not their fault. Their body size is perfect. And it's most people's bodies know the size to be right to keep them safe and healthy. But I think we all grow up in a culture where either it's friends or parents or family members telling you there's something wrong with your body from a young age. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. growing up with parents who 
we're always on diets and it's not, yeah. no, it's not their fault, but right. it's just like, I don't remember last, you know, my mom was always on some kind of diet or keto, keto or doing yeah. some latest gym thing. And yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's funny because we were talking about reproductive care and reproductive rights, mm-hmm. but this is a f- far bigger, you know, issue. And in, you know, some, when I drink a little too much, sometimes I come to think like, what's the solution? Like what, you know, I've heard black friends say the same thing. Like we're dying. Yeah. What else do you want us to say? You know, and the same thing can be told said about, about people who don't fit the body size, whatever BMI chart. It's like, what, what's the solution there? And interestingly or non-interestingly enough by calling your patients clients you know if if we live in a capitalist world is it what's what's going to have to happen like we're going to have to change that first really consider patients clients to be in like that mindset of i'm paying you so therefore give me the service i want this sucks yeah absolutely why can't we just be human like i just feel i'm not drunk right now (laughs) but i feel like one of those evenings it's just like why i know it's so it's so frustrating and it's it's enraging actually yeah. that the people who are being harmed are the people who are doing the work. Right? <laughs> Sorry, you can just wave the tail in your face. Yes. Oh. This is like we were good. we were away for a couple of weeks and she's very affectionate right now. Oh, this is <laughs> I hope it was for vacation. A visiting family, yeah. Everyone was finally vaccinated, so we were able to see them. Good for yeah. you in New York. Yeah. What? In New York? Uh, they're in California and Florida. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a wide range of, it was yeah. a beautiful road trip. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. nice that you have a partner that also has the same kind of schedules. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the other thing I was thinking of when we were, when we were just talking about that last question is, you know, you asked kind of like what I see, and especially in the birth world, we have such we have such good data to say what improves outcomes, right? So we know that doulas improve outcomes. And, but let's look at why that is. It's advocacy, it's support, it's encouragement of things that promote physiologic birth, right? So we know that being out of bed and moving around and eating and drinking promote healthy outcomes, right? And for people in larger bodies, especially if we put a number to that in terms of the BMI, there are hospitals have have certain restrictions of like what types of monitors you can use or can you get in the tub or not, right? So someone who you would really want, if, 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 if I'm gonna engage with you and say that body size can be a risk for certain things, which maybe for things like wound infection and, and things like that, there's some data behind, but if that's someone, if that's evidence that you believe and you want this person to really avoid a C-section or, you know, an unnecessary C-section, you should be doing everything in your power to change the policies so that this person can be promoting physiologic birth. So epidurals are wonderful for people who need or want them, but for people who don't need or want one, we should be doing whatever we can to help them avoid that and to help them, you know, optimize their outcomes and their birth preferences. But we should not have limitations in place based on someone's body size. It's, it's, it's so hypocritical to have those conflicting, you know, points of of data and policy. So that's a way I've really seen 
BMI affect people during their labor and birth specifically. And then with COVID on top of that, limiting doula support is essentially just saying like, Oh, that you're was just have, true. Yeah. You're going to have the outcome you're going to have. And it's not, it's not the same as what you would have had, had we followed science or not been in a pandemic. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely, that was just, you know, even, even the world health organization was like, this is a basic human right to have yep. support, support during yeah. birth and labor. And well, it should be a basic human right to have that anyway, but yeah. before and after, yeah. but do you do mental health follow-up? in your, in your practice? So we encourage people to have like the two week follow-up and that ideally could be done via telehealth. If someone doesn't have a physical concern, so you get a little bit more time and you get to be at home. What we should be doing is home care. Like we should be doing, you know, home visits for, for mental health, but that's all we have right now is the two week and the six week follow-up. And of course, if someone has an acute concern, well, we would see them every day if that were the case, but that's only if there's, if either an, an issue was identified or they've reached out with one. Okay. Yeah. That's it. There's definitely something lacking there too. Yes. Yet yes. Again, I had a psychiatrist told me recently that, and it, it's strange because I know the way she practices is not quite that, but she said, I'm an acuity junkie, you know, like acute and it's situations. And it just made me think we as human in general, and especially in the field of medicine have been so disconnected with nature in general that we feel the need to intervene at all costs. And what I'm hearing you say is take a step back, take a breather, go take a fucking walk and then come back to serve your client. Uh, Because ultimately they are the people who are doing the the work. We would not force a treatment on a cancer patient client. Why are we doing this to new parents, to birding people, to postpartum people, and it's, it's interesting because she said that, and she's in, in psychiatry, which is, you know, it demands time and adjustment. And, but I, I think she was referring to something when she used to work in, in ER or something, but I'm like, yeah, if, if this is what, you, but I, I feel this is kind of a disease that's spread throughout medicine at large, which is like this need to just like put your paws on every single thing and that includes specifically female body or birding bodies, or, you know, we got to control like the God syndrome is something. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, maybe there's like something there too about the patriarchal system and the, you know, this need to control and to, to, it's hard to, when you have not that I'm excusing anything, but when you have power, power is nice. Power feels nice. You want to keep it and to take a step back. And there's really like, you got to force it. It's like a freaking bandaid. You got to strip. Yeah. Take a step back. Yeah. Let the person do her, their, his job. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think historically, this is why so many midwives knit <laughs> a, a lot of, a lot of midwives will just have need something to do with their hands while, while labor and birth are happening because our hands shouldn't be on a person. 
Yeah. There's usually not an intervention that's needed, right? We're just, we're there to bear witness. We're there to support. We're there to screen for abnormalities because they do happen, but it's just not the norm. So this assumption that something's always going to be wrong or something always needs to be done just creates so many problems. And it leads to the power dynamic that we've referenced a couple of times, right? So this patient, quote unquote, patient provider dynamic that's so inappropriate in healthcare, if if that gets torn down, that's where we're going to see immediate change happen, right? If the if the power dynamic either equalizes or shifts to the client, then we're going to see immediate changes where we have to follow best science and we have to have policies that are based on that science, and and we can't perform unnecessary out like interventions and things like that. But the way it exists right now and the way it has been historically is that like doctor knows best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not, and, and midwives are guilty of this too, right? But it's, it's just not usually the case because people are resilient and they're just experts in their own bodies. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're missing such a wealth of information when we don't tap into that person's expertise. Which goes back to individualized care, individualized care. Yeah. It's funny. I just interviewed a woman who is actually the the founder of Motherhood Beyond Bars back in, in wow. Georgia. And she helps, you know, postpartum women try to figure out. Anyway, and she was saying that when she gave birth herself, her midwife was next to her, who was in the tub, legs up, playing solitary on her phone. And she was like, that was the best feeling ever to just have someone next to me. Yeah. Just yeah. being there, bearing witness. Yeah. And as you said, this is, you know, emergencies are not the norm. Acuity is not the norm specifically in in birth. And do you think the way healthcare is right now demands for trauma-informed care? Like, because of the way it's, do you know what I mean? Like, because of the way it's set, it's traumatizing in itself. So therefore we're asking providers to, perform something against what they're actually doing. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, trauma-informed care has to be the norm. And, you know, there's a little bit, I'm, I'm evolving in this, in this area a little bit too. And this is such like the root of my passion, but I, I used to teach about, you know, how to appropriately screen for trauma and how to get consent before engaging in those conversations. But I'm starting to move towards like, those are good skills to have, but we should just assume that everyone has had trauma and we should treat everyone as if they have, or, you know, in regards to the care I provide is going to be trauma informed in the set, in the sense that like, I'm going to get consent before engaging in conversations that are sensitive before ever touching your body, even if it's to feel your thyroid or to listen to your heart and lungs, not just a pelvic exam. And I'm going to do that while your clothes are on your body and you're not naked in a paper gown, sweating in, in sitting up on a table where this power dynamic has already been asserted. Even if I'm really good at my job, if, if that's the dynamic of the room, that's not trauma informed. So you can have the most trauma-informed provider, but if that's your system's policy and you don't do anything to change it, that's not, right? So I've just started moving towards saying, you know, I'm happy to have these conversations. I think they're super important to your health, but is there anything in particular that you want me to know about for how I care for you? Because I don't need someone disclosing trauma to me that, that they've 
worked through, right? I don't, I don't need them to re-traumatize themselves for something that they don't feel I need to know. Instead of just saying like, has anyone ever hit, punched, or kicked you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just assuming that, which sounds like basic human being, just assume, yeah. not assuming anything and right. just asking for permission. Yeah. It's not that complicated. It's it? not, it's not, but it's not what's taught. So yeah. in, in, instead of this being a really simple fix, it's changing an entire culture. Well, you are doing this now until, you know, now that you have the energy. Yeah, exactly. Before you, you, you turn into a full-time pasta maker. Yes. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. You are absolutely lovely and smart. And Emily was lucky and I'm almost sad not to have a uterus anymore because I think I would make another (laughs) baby just to get you. That's so, so sweet. I mean, I'm, I'm the lucky one. I have the best job in the world and I, I have the honor of being with people through these things. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful to you for talking with me and just for, for getting this out there. And hopefully we won't have to be so grassroots one day. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was very special. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Faces of Postpartum, the podcast. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and register on Apple Podcast or anywhere you listen to us. If you have any show ideas or comments, you can reach us at podcast at facesofpostpartum.com. We also have an Instagram at facesofpostpartum, and we always love to hear from you. See you soon.